Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. I am not David Crowther. Unless he's shifted up an octave or so and gone Aussie for the week. I'm Hannah Kilpatrick and I'm going to talk this week about the afterlife of Thomas of Lancaster. Thomas, our Lord the King put upon you that ye have in his land ridden with banner displayed against his peace as a traitor. And with that word, the gentle Earl Thomas, with a high voice, said, Nay, lords, forsooth and by St. Thomas, I was never traitor. The justice said again then, Thomas, our lord the king put upon thee that ye have robbed his folk and murdered his folk as a thief. Thomas, the king also put upon you that he defeated you and your people with his folk in his own realm, wherefore ye went and fled to the wild as an outlaw, and also ye were there taken as an outlaw. And Thomas, as a traitor, you should be hanged by reason, but the king hath forgiven you that fate for the love of Queen Isabel. And Thomas, reason would that you should be hanged, but the king hath forgiven that fate for cause and love of your lineage. But Thomas, for as much as ye were taken fleeing as an outlaw, the king wills that your head be smitten off, as ye have well deserved. Anon, do him out of press and bring him to his judgment. The gentle knight, when he had heard all these words, with a high voice he cried, sore weeping, and said, Alas, Saint Thomas, fair father, alas, shall I be dead thus? Grant me now, blissful God, answer. But all it availed him nothing, for the cursed Gascons put him hither and thither, and on him cried with a high voice, O oh, King Arthur, most dreadful, well known is now thine open traitory. In evil death shalt thou die, as thou hast well deserved. Then sit they upon his head in scorn, an old chaplet, all torrent and torn, that was not worth a halfpenny. And after they set him on a lean white palfrey, full unseemly, and also all bare with an old bridle. And with a horrible noise they drew him out of the castle towards his death and cast on him many balls of snow. And as the tormentors led him out of the castle, then said he these piteous words, and his hands held up in high towards heaven. Now the king of heaven give us mercy, for the earthly king hath us forsaken. And a friar preacher went with him out of the castle, till that he came to the place where he ended in his life, unto whom he shrove him all his life. And the gentle earl held the friar wonder fast by the clothes, and said, Fair father, abide with us till that I be dead, for my flesh quaketh with the dread of death. 
and sooth for to say, the gentle earl set him upon his knees and turned him toward the east. But a ribald that men called Hugon or Moston set hand upon the gentle earl and said in despite of him, Sir traitor, turn thee toward the Scots thy foul death to undergo, and turned the earl towards the north. The noble old Thomas answered then with a mild voice, and said, Now, fair lords, I shall do all your own will. And with that word the friar went from him full sore, and anon a ribald went to him, and smote off his head, the eleventh of the calendar of April, that is the twenty-second of March, in the year of grace 1322. Such is the account of the death of Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, in one of the Middle English versions of the Brute Chronicle for this century. Now, if you are listening very closely, you might detect just a hint of bias in the source. And you'd be right. This version of The Brute is the one published by Friedrich Spree for the Early English Tech Society in 1906. It's written a decade or two after Lancaster's death, with all the benefit of hindsight, and it draws on, and is in fact still doing a lot of work to solidify and immortalise, the cult of St Thomas of Lancaster. Don't clean your ears out. Saint. Those of you who have been following David attentively might well be raising an incredulous eyebrow or two at this point. Okay, so maybe King Edward could have handled a few things, a lot of things, better than he did. But how do you get from there to Lancaster being a saint? This is, remember, the man who spent a good part of the last ten years being as obstructive as possible, despite the intercession of more keep-the-peace characters like the Earl of Pembroke who basically threw Bartholomew of Bolesmere to the wolves for a personal grudge, left most of his friends down south in the lurch while he dithered about up north and never really got his act together, despite having significantly more martial clout than any of them, and almost entirely failed to be the figurehead and leader that everyone else had gambled on, who may have been colluding treacherously with the Scots towards the end of things, who seems to have been motivated mostly by self-interest at almost every turn, and, from the faint glimpses we get of his personal life, I don't envy his poor wife much. Not a monster, by any stretch, but hardly up there with Moses and Saint Cecilia in the whole let-my-people-go stakes. And call me an idealist, but I'd have thought that sainthood takes a little bit more than not being as rubbish as the other guy. Oh, but wait, there is more. Martyrdom. The man got his head chopped off. But didn't that happen to Gaveston way back when? And in fact, why doesn't every executed baron become a saint? Clearly there's something else going on here. That thing will be called hagiography. If you're not familiar with the term, hagiography is the stories of the lives of saints. And there's a whole bunch of them. They're basically the fairy tales of the Middle Ages. The sorts of stories you tell your kids. And they can be just as fantastical. Dragons, exotic evil tyrants, angels in disguise, plenty of miracles, the works. And just like fairy tales, they've got a lot of repetition, easily recognisable tropes and characters, and you know exactly who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. Given a lot of these stories come from the first few centuries of Christianity, about saints struggling under Roman rule or trying to preach to people further afield who didn't particularly want to hear it, one theme you hear a lot of is the evil tyrant who persecutes and kills the good guys. The good guys who are, of course, preaching hard truths about the right thing to do and the right way to live. You can already see where this is going, can't you? So could they. Hagiography, by its nature, carries a sort of symbolic weight that can be transferred to almost any historical figure of importance, especially if they can be made to look like they died in pursuit of some commendable ideal. 
And this wasn't all about figures in the distant past. Simon de Montfort already had a bit of this kind of glamour about him, at least in some people's opinions, and Lancaster and Edward themselves had successfully petitioned the Pope in 1320 for the canonisation of a bishop called Thomas of Cantaloupe, who'd held the See of Hereford until his death in 1282, so still in living memory. Sainthood isn't all comfortably closed off in the past, in the medieval mindset. They're potentially all around you, as are their nemeses. So you have this cultural cachet of meaning, if you like, which you can use to understand not only the stories you read, but the world around you. You can see how it would be very tempting to use this sort of comforting, stable model to make sense of troubled times and social trauma. Wouldn't it be nice to say that the whole economic crisis is just plain and simple the result of people being mean to poor old Margaret Thatcher, and now she's dead, she'll fix it. Scapegoat and saviour all at once. So it wasn't long at all before people began to attach the symbolism of hagiography to Thomas of Lancaster. Digression into philosophy and historiography for a moment. I'm not talking propaganda here. Not directly. I don't mean a deliberate twisting of the truth to cynically manipulate the minds of the masses or anything like that. Almost all medieval literature, including hagiography, lays a stronger emphasis on the comprehension of an event than on the event's literal aspects. So this means that if you're studying the Bible, for example, you're taught to understand the literal meaning of a particular passage first, but that's the least important. What you really want to get at is under that, to the allegorical and the spiritual, and ideally you should be able to read the world in the same way. So the literal event of March the 2nd, 1322, is that Lancaster got his head cut off on Edward II's orders. That's plain and simple, but it doesn't actually teach anybody anything. Read that event, Lancaster's execution, as the death of a traitor, and suddenly the event contains meaning. That's a story. Read it as a martyrdom, and it's even more potent. It means that Lancaster is a saint, and that means that you, as the writer of history, need to tell that story in such a way that people can perceive that and learn from it. You want to follow the hagiographical pattern, to use hagiographical tropes. That is the real truth. Lancaster being a saint... Whether or not every single detail of the story, as, for example, all that dialogue that the brute so liberally invents, is factually accurate, isn't really a question that's meant to arise. The point is that it serves a deeper truth, one that God presumably put there. Who knows if Lancaster really did say, now may the king of heaven give us mercy for the earth the king hath forsaken us. It doesn't matter. Sounds a bit like, into thy hands I commend my spirit, doesn't it? With a hearty dose of, why have you forsaken me? It's meant to. With the added bonus of casting Edward as that old pagan tyrant, it's a detail that supports the narrative. Whether Lancaster said that or not is, that is, according to the author of The Brute, how we should be understanding his character and his death. So, to summarise the digression, writing about history or current events as history is more of an act of interpretation for medieval writers than it is for us, because the meaning is more important than the event. And this does not count as lying. It counts as revealing the truth. That's what counts as good historical writing at this point. Especially when you're dealing with a subject who, even as you're writing, also has enemies. Especially enemies who are busily trying to prove that he is a traitor. So, let the battle for Lancaster's image commence. In one corner we have, of course, Edward and the Dispensers. 
the people fighting actively in the days after his death to suppress this inconvenient cult thing springing up all over the place. In the other corner we have, well, popularity. We have people fed up, or not fed up at all because, well, famine, with Edward's rule and all the woes that come with it, looking desperately for any figure to stand against it. We have pilgrim badges and suffrage prayers. We have mention of people flocking to convenient cult centres. We have reports of miracles. We have full-blown hagiography in the form of the anonymous De Beato Tomai of the Blessed Thomas, which tells the story of his life after the model of a saint's life. And we have several chronicles, like The Brute, The Anonymal Chronicle and The Fine Shade Chronicle, which participate to a greater or lesser extent in this whole tug of war. Now, the way I'm going to handle this is to skim quickly over some of the characteristics of the cult, why it was attractive so quickly, why Edward couldn't afford to just ignore it, then look more closely at one specific element of this whole Passion of Lancaster story, which is the accusation that he was colluding with the Scots, and see how both sides handled that to their advantage. I think the author of The Brute Chronicle ultimately wins. So far as we can make it out, this is what happened. Within a week of his execution, according to the Anonymous Chronicle, we're getting reports of miracles attributed to Lancaster. People flocked to the site of his execution at Pontefract and to the church in Pontefract where he was buried. In London, people did the same at St Paul's, at the board in the cathedral that commemorated the ordinances. Remember the ordinances? London did. And Lancaster is being strongly associated with the ordinances, which tells us a good deal about why people were getting into this so quickly. Devotion to the new martyr quickly became so widespread that Edward II and the Spencers were obliged to do their best to suppress it. So, on June 28, Edward wrote to the Bishop of London, warning sternly against allowing people to continue to colere et adorare, worship and adore, Lancaster at the board in St Paul's. And they forbade access to his tomb in Pontefract. In fact, the brute claims that Hugh Spencer the Younger persuaded Edward to seal the doors of the church at Pontefract altogether, which would mean that people were denied access to any form of ordinary worship too, so fairly extreme action if that's true. By August, things were getting violent. There was an incident when the constable of Pontefract Castle had personally, on Edward's orders, gone to the place of Lancaster's execution to, quote, prohibit a multitude of malefactors and apostates from praying and making oblations there in memory of the said earl, not to God, but rather to idols, in contempt of the king and contrary to his prior command. So, dressing the new martyr cult as idol worship rather than legitimate religion. The constable and his servants were assaulted, and two of them were killed. The Archbishop of York weighed in in September and October on Edward's side, he ordered the cessation of worship of Lancaster at Pontefract with absolutely no effect that I can make out. And so it went on. By the time, spoiler alert, Queen Isabella invaded in 1326, devotion to Lancaster was popular enough that she found it convenient to align her cause with his and advance in the martyr's name, a tactic which, combined with her own and the Bishop of Hereford's adroit handling of her image, effectively won most of the country to her support, and did most of the overthrowing of her husband for her. Edward III, during his minority, followed his mother's example, or possibly instructions, publicly attaching himself to his great-uncle Lancaster's cult. In February 1327, and again in March 1330, he wrote to Pope John XXII requesting that Lancaster be canonised, and the language in these letters is characteristic of the way that St Thomas was being worshipped by then, 
being talked about as a martyr who nurtures a divided, weak England by means of his death. Quote, Who already, like a river flowing from that blessed place and dividing into streams to irrigate every field, makes the soil of England wholesomely temperate and fecund by the grace of heaven through the ruddy effusion of his holy blood, while at his pious bidding so many divine miracles beyond the doing of nature have been caused to take place and an infinite number of healings, by the favour of God, have been granted through his prayer and desert, and so on. Even when he began personal rule, Edward III continued to support Lancaster as a legitimate martyr, solidifying the cult as something publicly respectable, and bringing it in under the wing of the monarchy, as it were, rather than letting it continue to stand in opposition to the monarchy. For the next century, all the kings of England, particularly for obvious reasons, the usurping Lancastrian monarchs, associated themselves closely with Lancaster's memory, although he never did get an official canonisation. So this isn't just a few vocal crazies we're talking about here. This is a large-scale popular movement, and I don't just mean among the populace, but on all levels of society, excepting, presumably, the camp of Edward and Spencer's. So what does this cult actually look like? How are people thinking of Lancaster and what's in it for them, as it were? Well, there's a lot of phrases that crop up repeatedly in the sources we have that can give us a clue about the sorts of things that people valued in this mostly fictional guy called St Thomas. We hear his generosity extolled, both to the poor and to his peers. His knightly virtues are equated with Christian virtues through phrases such as Knight of Christ, God's warrior and flower of chivalry, Sometimes he gets depicted as a crusader. He never did go on crusade, by the way. It's purely metaphorical. Reference is made to his noble lineage and his feudal strength. He's shown wearing humble clothing at his capture, judgment or execution, as we saw in that opening passage from the Brute. False accusations are levelled at him, particularly of treachery and collusion with the Scots. He's also closely associated with his namesake and predecessor in the resistance of royal tyranny, St Thomas Becket. We heard him pray twice to St Thomas, just in that short passage from the Brutes that I already read. And sometimes he's associated too with Thomas of Cantaloupe, that bishop that he'd been instrumental in getting canonised before. Also, though less frequently, with Simon of Montfort. Remember, one of the five earldoms that Lancaster holds is actually Simon's, earldom of Leicester. And I believe that uh, Lancaster himself was playing up that association towards the end, characterise himself as this man of principle standing against bad government. But these are just characteristics. What's far more powerful are the story elements, the narrative moments that link Lancaster's story in with the already known stories of martyrs and saints. And who's that first great martyr, the pattern for all the others? Well, we get a lot of elements in the narrative sources like The Brute, which work specifically to make Lancaster's death look more like Christ's passion. For example... Lancaster is betrayed to death by his disciples, that is, by men he'd knighted or taken under his wing. Sir Robert Holland abandons him at a crucial moment in the Battle of Burton-upon-Trent, taking a large part of Lancaster's force with him, and Sir Andrew Harclay, leading part of the King's army, defeats and captures him at Boroughbridge. And Lancaster, or the narrator, typically predicts the death of one or both traitors. In all three chronicles that I'm looking at, The Brute, The Fine Chain and The Anonymous, Lancaster either maintains silence before his persecutors or before the mockery of others, or he's not allowed to speak in his own defence. 
as Christ was silent before the judges, and in reference to all those early Christian martyrs who either spoke out very passionately, like St. Cecilia, through divine inspiration and were killed anyway, or who were denied the right to defend themselves. All these chronicles dwell on the idea of Lancaster's speech or the suppression of it, so it's obviously felt to be important. As Jesus was dressed contemptuously and given a crown of thorns and was jeered by the crowd on the way to execution, Lancaster has this old chaplet placed on his head. The crowd throws things at him and his pretensions are mocked. Remember the brute? Oh, King Arthur, most dreadful. Dreadful means to be dreaded, by the way, not, wow, you make a dreadful King Arthur. Thought might be that as well in this case. And just in case you missed all of that, you get hit in the face with lines like the one I quoted before that sounds suspiciously like, why have you forsaken me, or into thy hands I commend my spirit? And these lines appear in a few sources, sometimes they're addressed to God, and sometimes to Thomas Beckett. And of course, the point of all martyrdom is salvation. Not for yourself, so much as for other people. Jesus died to save humanity. Lancaster? Well, we're told that both before and after his death, St. Thomas fights directly for the liberty and the well-being of England as Edward III implied in that letter to the Pope. And this really goes a long way to explaining his popularity and the way that it suddenly skyrocketed as soon as his head came off. He's a divine intercessor for the country. You'll already have been getting the idea from David that England's feeling pretty desperate round about now. You've got civil war, famine, increasing taxes, for some time now, brawling and pillaging amongst the gentry and nobility, displacement of families from their traditional land, with all the messiness and the raiding and the insecurity and the violence that you'd expect to result from that, and a king increasingly willing to bend the letter of the law to his will. And if you're up north, you've got that lovely bonus of the Scots eyeing you up over the fence. It all makes for a pretty disordered and unstable society throughout the 1320s, politically and socially and economically, and a lot of people in a pretty bad way. And for the first time in his reign, Edward's now ruling unopposed. He's more powerful than ever, so are the dispensers, and if you believe, as a lot of people did, that all the evils of his reign so far are the fault of the king, including the famine and things like that that we'd really consider nowadays to be outside his control, then this doesn't look good for the land. People are scared. But in the middle of this, you have a new saint arising under circumstances that placed him in direct opposition to the king. A man who stood against the king and advocated the right way of government, whatever that is, as a divine figure promising to just fix all of it, whatever all of it is, again, from your perspective. It's a pretty attractive halo, a very powerful and a very comforting idea. So a lot of people think Lancaster makes a pretty good saint. But what's the problem? A saint's just a saint, right? The man's dead. It's not like he's a threat anymore. Why can't Edward and Co just leave it at that? Why have we got people actually coming to violent blows over all this? People getting killed? Well, you'll already be figuring that this isn't just a question of, oh yes, some people out there think he's a saint, no big, doesn't actually have anything to do with daily life. This really isn't something that good King Neg can just ignore. The question of who was Thomas of Lancaster actually has very real political capital. Because once you put Lancaster in a story like that, it's not only his image that's changed by it. If you've got a Christ... You need a Pilate or a Herod. You need a Judas and a Peter. You need every Jew who sneered and rejected him. Maybe even a Barabbas if you're getting fancy. The story reflects not only on a protagonist, but on people around him, good and bad. So we have Edward as the tyrant, and those two knights, Harclay and Holland, as twin Judases, 
whose thirty pieces of silver see them die traitors' deaths in their ill-gotten fields. All this means that in the wake of the Battle of Burrowbridge, there's good reason for both sides to be scrambling around trying to take control of Lancaster's post-Thomas image. Hasty worship at Pontefract and St Paul's, equally hasty banning of said worship, and so forth. Both sides hold that Lancaster had died for the good of the land, either as a traitor who deserved death because he caused civil discord, or as a martyr whose death would allow him to intercede with God on England's behalf. Both sides needed to reshape his image, his merits or his faults, to fit what they saw as being wrong with the land, including all the hot-button issues of the day. And one of the most important issues at stake was that question of inviting those Scottish neighbours over to discuss invasions and deals over your lovely treacherous cocktails. Now, as David mentioned, there had been rumours flying around that Lancaster, or if you're in the other camp, that Dispenser was dealing with Robert Bruce since at least the collapse of the English siege of Berwick in 1319. Given the tension at the Anglo-Scottish border, insinuations of Scottish collaboration have been a standard weapon in the arsenal of both sides in the lead-up to the Civil War. For example, Lancaster's letter, summoning all the barons of the realm to a meeting at Doncaster in late November 1321, and Edward's letter forbidding all the barons of the realm from the meeting at Doncaster, both accuse the other of side of fostering aliens and Scottish rebels in almost exactly the same words, one's in Anglo-Norman and one's in Latin, but it's, this phrase is almost exactly the same. It makes perfect sense in this context for Edward to bring charges of negotiating with the Scots against Lancaster at his trial. It's much weightier and much more unequivocal than a lot of the other charges. But it also would have made sense, especially over the course of those last few months, for Lancaster to attempt some negotiation with Bruce. According to Lancaster's biographer Maddicott, Lancaster was in the position by the time of the meeting at Doncaster to need all the help that he could get, in the form of allies actual or threatened. On the 6th of December, eight days after the date set for the Doncaster meeting, letters of safe conduct appear to have been issued by James Douglas, one of Robert Bruce's men, to Richard Topcliffe, one of Lancaster's, and a companion to meet him at Jedburg by a messenger from the adherents of the Earl of Lancaster, pronuncio ab adherentibus comitis Lancastriae. Further negotiations seem to have followed. Now these letters do exist, but they exist in the Federa, i.e. in copies contained in the royal collections. They were made public at the time of Lancaster's trial as evidence against him, and we don't have any record of them from any other source. We wouldn't expect it, really, but considering the source, I wouldn't really call that evidence. Though honestly, even if they are faked, that doesn't mean he wasn't guilty, and it's quite likely that he was anyway. But I'm not really interested in what Lancaster did. I'm interested in what was said about what he did, the cultural weight of it, what people believe and why, what they do with that belief. That's what makes the good stories. And that's what people end up believing. So that's what tends to have more effect on the... Uh, generations to come, and in the case of a hot-button issue like this, on what's going on at the time. So, back to the Brute. For the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to stick with the Brute as the culmination of the Lancastrian side's argument, partly because it's probably representing some strands of popular opinion on the subject anyway, and partly because we have, in the Brute Chronicler, a clever writer who's very sensitive to these charges of treachery and knows just how to deal with them. He does this not by ignoring or refuting these rumours, or official charges really, but turning them to the advantage of St Thomas by working them into this narrative of martyrdom that he's got going on. 
The story, according to Edward and to Lancaster's other detractors, is, firstly, Lancaster was colluding with Bruce. Probably had been for years, which would explain why the Scots just kept being a bother up north, and also why, incidentally, they just didn't seem to be bothering Lancaster's land so much. The story comes in a few different flavours. Sometimes we hear that evil Lancaster is trying to set up Bruce as the Scottish king in exchange for help against the English crown. Sometimes that he's just being his evil self and inviting Scots into the land and bringing about the destruction of England just for the sake of death and destruction. Whether you prefer the political version or the general panic version, the point is the Scots are the boogeymen, and Lancaster is handing us good, red-blooded, innocent English, she said with an Australian accent, over to their terrible clutches. This is, if you like, the traitor narrative, to set against the saint's tale. The brute doesn't dignify the broad outline of this traitor story by repeating it just in order to contradict it. Obviously it's untrue. Who will believe such a thing of a good saintly man like Lancaster? And in any case, the story as told in The Brute leaves no room for treachery. Any mention of Lancaster as a traitor is put in the mouth of men whom we're not meant to believe. Harclay, for example, the man who captured him at Barrowbridge, uh, villainous Gascons and so on, they're not facts, they're insults. What The Brute does is instead tacitly contradict a lot of the more vivid details of the traitor narrative, the bits that everyone's most likely to hang on to and remember, because they're the bits that make a good story. And it does this by incorporating them into its own version of events and turning them around, making them even more vivid and memorable to its own ends. First and most simply, there's the idea that Lancaster is slyly inviting these Scots into England and that that's why they're invading. Well, in the Bruce version of events, Robert Bruce invades as a direct result not of Lancaster's plotting, but of the strife between Edward and the barons, which is, of course, Edward's fault. Bruce seizes his opportunity when he heard of the debate that was in England between the king and his lords, heard of the debate that was in England between the king and his lords. The fault is therefore more Edward's than Lancaster's, but of course Lancaster is the one who is unjustly proclaimed a traitor like the poor wronged martyr that he is. Then we have the fact that the defeated rebels were cut off by Harclay at Boroughbridge, in other words, fleeing north from Lancaster's main stronghold at Pontefract, towards Scotland. Many people took this at the time for a sign of guilt, that he was fleeing to his Scottish allies for help. I think it may have come up at his show trial, but it's definitely mentioned in the Vita Eduardi Secundi and the Annals of St Paul's as well. The Brute Chronicler parries this charge with a double deflection. Firstly, he makes it clear that they were aiming for Lancaster's northern holdings, not for Scotland, of course, Lancaster owns most of the north of England anyway, so there are plenty of northern holdings up there. Secondly, he writes this beautifully dramatic showdown with Lancaster confronting the remainder of his men, all of whom advocate flying north, while Lancaster resists the idea. Lancaster holds out because he wants to avoid even the appearance of treachery, saying that if we're gone toward the north, Men will sign that we gone toward the Scottish, and so we shall behold the traitors. If we go towards the north, men will say that we go towards the Scots, and so we shall be held traitors. And he won't yield on this point until one of his men, Sir Roger Clifford, threatens him with drawn sword and forces him into it. Incidentally, this uh, particular scene is so nice and vivid that it's entered very thoroughly into the story of Lancaster's flight and stayed there. A lot of historians today repeat it uncritically as fact, which is rather dangerous. It's not attested anywhere else except in sources that are obviously copying the brute. 
and it fits far too well into the brute pattern of Lancastrian revisionism to be taken literally without very solid support from an independent source. So if you come across a historian, and there's a lot of uh, biographers of major figures in Edward's reign from the last couple of decades, um, if you do come across someone who does this, just be aware they're probably not being as critical with their sources as they should. And the next point, King Arthur most dreadful. Remember those letters from Edward that Edward produced at uh, Lancaster's air quotes trial, the ones between him and the emissaries of Robert Bruce? Now, these letters have Lancaster, or whoever had written it, pretending to be Lancaster, signing, him, uh, signing the letters with a pseudonym, uh, and that pseudonym is King Arthur. Now, if that's actually Lancaster, that would be massive in its political capital. Setting yourself up as the mythic and royal saviour of Britain generally is not the way to go about pretending to be a loyal and rebellious subject who's just trying to set his erring king back on the right course by getting rid of some evil counsellors. In fact, less than a decade later, when, spoiler alert, Mortimer and Isabella are running the country in the name of young Edward III, the fact that Mortimer starts holding tournaments in which he dresses up as King Arthur is one of the big danger signals that somebody's getting too big for his very expensive boots and Edward needs to take some personal control right now before he loses any chance of it. So, what does the brute chronicler do with the allegation that Lancaster's using that title? Instead of acknowledging that he's using it as a symbol of royal perversion, the chronicler has the name hurled at Lancaster in mockery by the crowd as he's dragged to his execution. So the accusation isn't acknowledged outright, but it's preempted and replaced with a scenario that redounds to Lancaster's credit, not to Edward's. Because by having the crowd hurl false accusations, that's par for the course in any martyrdom tale. Think of the mocking King of the Jews sign pinned to the cross over Jesus' head. Having the crowd do this is, ironically, proving Lancaster's righteousness by casting themselves as Christ's tormentors and deriders on the way to Calvary. Once you've got that symbolism going, the name of the legendary protector of England takes on a deeper meaning than the literal, more appropriate to St Thomas of Lancaster than the jeering crowd can know. So at the same time you've got him saying, well, this is where this story comes from. It's not because he signed himself, signed the letters King Arthur, it's because people were mocking him about being King Arthur, but at the same time the chronicler saying, well, actually, it's not that inappropriate. He really is like Arthur in the most uh, deep and meaningful sense. And finally, of course, while the author of Brute never outright acknowledges or argues against the charge of traitor, his Lancaster actually does get a chance to. His Lancaster gets to have words with that nasty, traitorous Sir Andrew Harclay on the very subject, just before Harclay takes him captive and leads him to his doom. Uh, and they have this little argument that centres over whether loyalty should be to the king or to the realm. And Harclay's loyalty, though he protests his loyalty, his loyalty does prove to be untrue and to be a very fickle thing. So the, uh, the argument goes, Sir Andrew, quod he, quod Lancaster, ye must well understand that our lord the king is led and misgoverned by much false counsel through Sir Hugh the Spencer the father, and Sir Hugh the son, and Sir John Earl of Arundel, and through Master Robert Baldock, a false clerk that is in the king's court dwelling. Wherefore, I pray you that ye will come with us, with all the power that ye have ordained, and help to destroy the venom of England, and the traitors that be therein. And we will give unto you the best part of five earldoms that we have and hold, and we will make unto you an oath, that we will never do thing without your counsel. 
and so ye shall be at, as well at ease with us as ever was Robert Holland, evoking the memory of that other traitor whom we've already derided thoroughly. Then answered Sir Andrew of Harclay and said, Sir Thomas, that will I not do, nor consent thereto, for no manner thing that ye might me give without the will and commandment of our Lord the King, for then should I be holden a traitor for evermore. And when the noble Earl of Lancaster saw that he would not consent to him for no manner thing, Sir Andrew, he said, will ye not consent to destroy the venom of the realm as we be consented? At one word, Sir Andrew, I tell thee that ere this year be gone, that ye shall be taken and held for a traitor, and more than ye hold us now, and in worse death ye shall die than ever did knight of England, and understand well that never ye did thing that sorrow ye shall repent. And now go, and do what you could likes, and I will put me to the mercy and grace of God. And then a little later, once they're done arguing, and so went the false traitor, Sir Andrew of Harclay, on his way as a false traitor, a tyrant and a forsworn man, for through the noble Earl of Lancaster he took up the arms of chivalry, and through him he was made knight. So much for civilities. The next time these two meet, Harclay is dragging Lancaster out of the church where he's taken sanctuary, a la Thomas Beckett, hurling the word traitor at him and yelling as a wolf. And indeed, within a year, Harclay is himself executed for colluding with the Scots. Game, set and match in terms of moral high ground, Go to Lancaster. One last thing worth mentioning. Medieval saints tend to acquire a sort of portfolio over and above their official patronages. Just like in any polytheistic system, people have various complaints or ailments that they will take to a given deity or mini-deity or saint, which will tend to vary from region to region. Sometimes these associations are a bit random with no obvious logic, and sometimes the logic is rather more direct, even if it's something that would seem pretty incongruous to us today. So Lancaster supposedly died to heal England, so he becomes a symbol of national redress. That's all well and good, simple enough, on a grand scale. But in everyday terms, what else does he have in his resume? Well, you know how saints typically have relics, a bone or a vial of blood or some object associated with their death, like a fragment of the wheel of St. Catherine, or just some item of their clothing. Well, Lancaster's hat quickly becomes an object of veneration. It and he were supposed to be very good at curing headaches. Why? Well, who better to sympathise with a sore head than the man who had his lopped off? Just a quick word to say thanks, Hannah. Very much indeed. I really enjoyed that. Next week, everyone... Edward and the dispensers are off the leash, free to indulge themselves with Moni Lancaster out of the way. Find out what happens. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.